welcome to the May 1st edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Lloyd's Karen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. A landmark published opinion from the Court of Appeals opens the door for apportionment of permanent disability to genetic factors. Here's what happened in the case of the City of Jackson versus the WCAB and Christopher Rice. Rice worked for the City of Jackson as a police officer. He started employment as a reserve officer in 2004 and became full-time in 2005. He sustained injury to his neck during the cumulative period ending in 2009, at which time he was only 29 years old. Before undergoing neck surgery, Rice was examined by a QME, Dr. Sloan Blair, who examined Rice and reviewed his medical records. Rice and his treating physician believed his pain was a consequence of repetitive bending and twisting of his head and neck and diagnosed him with cervical radiculopathy and cervical degenerative disc disease. Dr. Blair found that his condition was caused by his work activities for the city, but apportioned 25% to heritability and genetics. Dr. Blair then reevaluated Rice following his neck surgeries and changed her apportionment. The doctor stated that since his last evaluation, there were specific publications in the medical literature that lent even more support to the causation of genomics, genetics, heritable in issues, and terms of his injury. She listed three such journal studies and stated that because more recent studies supported genomics as a significant causative factor in cervical spine disability, her apportionment changed to 49% to his personal history, including genetic issues. The workers' compensation judge found the city had carried its burden of proof of showing apportionment as 49% attributable to genetic factors and Officer Rice filed for reconsideration. The WCAB granted reconsideration and ordered the matter returned to the trial level for an unapportioned award of permanent disability. The WCAB reasoned that finding causation on applicants' genetics opens the door to apportionment of disability to impermissible immutable factors. But the Court of Appeal reversed the WCAB in the published case of City of Jackson versus WCAB. Since the enactment of Senate Bill 899, apportionment of permanent disability it can now be based on causation, and the employer is liable only for the percentages of permanent disability directly caused by the industrial injury. Apportionment may now be based on other factors that cause the disability, including the natural progression of a non-industrial condition or disease, a pre-existing disability or post-injury disabling event, pathology, asymptomatic prior conditions, and retroactive prophylactic work preclusions. Precluding apportionment based upon what the board called impermissible immutable factors the court said, would preclude apportionment based on the very factors that the legislation now permits. The order granting reconsideration was annulled, and the case was remanded to the WCAB to deny reconsideration and reinstate the apportioned award. 
The United States Supreme Court ruled on a dispute between rival drug companies Amgen and Sandoz that could affect how quickly life-saving generic medicines are available to the public. The case involves the cutting-edge field of biologics. These are drugs made from living cells instead of chemicals. Biologics have led to major advances in treating cancer and other diseases, but often come with a massive price tag. But a 2010 law allows cheaper generic versions, known as biosimilars, to be produced after a 12-year exclusive run for the original. The issue the court had to decide was whether companies that make biosimilars must tack on an additional six months after federal approval before they can sell the drugs. The extra time can mean billions of dollars in additional sales of the original drugs before biosimilars enter the market. Several of the justices seemed to side with California-based drug maker Amgen, which claims that its rival Sandoz did not wait long enough before giving notice of its near copy of Amgen's cancer drug called Nupogen. Justice Stephen Breyer said at one point during this 70-minute argument that the court was being asked to interpret very technical provisions that he found somewhat ambiguous and he was operating in a field that he knew nothing about. But he conceded the decision is going to have huge implications for the future. The dispute involves the Sandoz drug Zarixio, which is an alternative that Sandoz developed to compete with Amgen's Nupogen that sells for about 15% less than the original product. The drug helps boost red blood cells in cancer patients. Amgen sued Sandoz for patent infringement, claiming that Sandoz violated the 2010 Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act. That law requires biosimilar makers to give a six-month notice of sales to rivals. A federal appeals court ruled in 2015 that the notice cannot take place until after biosimilar makers gain approval from the Food and Drug Administration. Sandoz is a unit of Swiss drug giant Novartis, and they say that reading of the law is wrong and unfairly gives an additional six months of exclusive sales to the original drug maker. But Justice Anthony Kennedy said it seems like the time has to start running from the date the biosimilar is licensed. And Chief Justice John Roberts said the original drug maker would have trouble bringing a patent infringement case without knowing the specifics of the biosimilar. A ruling is expected by the end of June. The widow of an Uber software engineer will likely test the limits of the workers' compensation law on psychiatric injuries. The decedent, Joseph Thomas, thought he had it made when he landed a $170,000 a year job as a software engineer at Uber's San Francisco headquarters. But his time at Uber turned into a personal tragedy one that will compel the ride-hailing company to answer questions before a workers' compensation judge about its aggressive work culture. And it may be a test of limits on the psychiatric claims in California. The decedent was always adept with computers. He worked his way up the ladder at tech jobs in his native Atlanta, then at the company LinkedIn in Mountain View, 
where he was a senior site reliability engineer. He then turned down an offer from Apple and took one at Uber because he felt he could grow more with a younger company and was excited about the chance to profit from stock options when it went public. But at Uber, Thomas struggled in a way he'd never experienced in over a decade in technology. He told his father and his wife that he felt immense pressure and stress at work and was scared that he would lose his job. Both urged him to see a psychiatrist. He told the doctor he was having panic attacks, trouble concentrating, and near constant anxiety. All of his doctors suggested that he leave his job, but he was adamant that he could not. One day in late August, his wife came home from dropping their children off at school. Joseph was sitting in his car in the garage, so she got into the passenger seat to talk to him. She found that Joseph had shot himself. He died in the hospital two days later, a week before he would have turned 34. His father and widow are convinced that the work environment and stress at Uber triggered his suicide. She has filed a workers' compensation claim seeking to hold Uber accountable for her husband's mental decline. Medical records from two East Bay psychiatrists he visited in the weeks before his suicide show that he reported job-related high anxiety, panic attacks, difficulty concentrating, and insomnia. Uber denied the benefits claim through its insurance carrier. In California, Labor Code Section 3208.3D provides that workers' compensation does not cover psychiatric injuries until after six months of employment. Joseph Thomas had worked slightly less than five months at Uber when he killed himself. But there's an exception to the six-month rule. It does not apply if the psychiatric injury is caused by a sudden and extraordinary employment condition. San Francisco applicant's attorney Richard Richardson, who represents the dependents in a death case, said the situation may be one of those exceptions. This case will no doubt be closely watched since it has high media attention in Silicon Valley circles. Uber's work culture has come under scrutiny after explosive revelations about the world's most valuable startup. In February, software engineer Susan Fowler wrote a blog post about sexual harassment and sexism at Uber and said its human resource department ignored complaints. At least three other former employees have filed lawsuits alleging sexual harassment or verbal abuse from Uber managers. And other current and former employees were also considering legal action. Even early investors Frida Kapoor, Klein, and Mitch Kapoor posted an open letter to Uber blasting it for a culture plagued by disrespect, exclusionary cliques, lack of diversity, and tolerance for bullying and harassment of every form. Uber said it took the allegations seriously and hired former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder to investigate its workplace for issues of sexism, diversity, and inclusion. The Holder report is pending. The Independent Physical Therapists of California is a nonprofit association of California physical therapists dedicated to advocating for physical therapists and their patients. Last month, it announced that it has filed suit against One Call Care Management and Align Networks in California Superior Court in San Diego. 
The complaint in this unfair competition lawsuit alleges that the physical therapists have lost money as a result of unlawful business practices by OneCall. It alleges that OneCall operates as unlicensed middlemen between workers' compensation payers and injured workers and their rehabilitation providers. The organization says that OneCall demands that physical therapists accede to significant discounts or potentially lose the ability to provide physical therapy services to large numbers of injured workers. The suit alleges that OnCall refers injured workers to those of its contracted healthcare professionals who exceed to the deepest discounts. The physical therapy organization claims to have communicated its concerns regarding these practices with the California Department of Insurance, the Senate Labor and Industrial Relations Committee, numerous state legislators, and leadership of other healthcare professional associations. In response to the lawsuit, one call filed a notice of removal in the United States Federal Court, Southern District of California, asserting original federal jurisdiction in the case to affect the removal of the action. At this time, no other substantive responsive pleadings have been filed in the federal court. Ontario, California-based Prime Healthcare Services and its nonprofit arm, Prime Healthcare Foundation, have faced multiple lawsuits along with angry employee unions in communities where it works or is taking over hospitals. Now, federal prosecutors have intervened in a whistleblower lawsuit against Prime Healthcare and the system's CEO that alleges emergency department physicians were pressured to admit patients who did not need inpatient care. The lawsuit targets 14 hospitals owned by Prime in California. The whistleblower lawsuit was brought by Karen Bernston, the former Director of Quality and Risk Management at Alvarado Hospital in San Diego, and she estimated that improper short-stay admissions accounted for more than $50 million in false claims. Most of the company's hospitals are in Southern California, including Sentinella Hospital Medical Center in Inglewood, Encino Hospital Medical Center, Sherman Oaks Hospital, and Huntington Beach Hospital. The suit accuses Prime of engaging in a systematic practice of pushing physicians to increase the number of inpatient admissions for medical beneficiaries who got to the emergency departments at Prime Hospitals, regardless of whether it was medically necessary. The FBI began investigating Prime Healthcare in 2011, shortly after the whistleblower lawsuit against the organization was filed. The trial in this case is now set for February next year. Overall, Prime owns and operates 43 acute care hospitals across the country. Since its founding in 2001, Prime has steadily scooped up troubled hospitals, turning them around by negotiating better rates from insurers, adding profitable service lines, and implementing aggressive billing tactics, among other strategies. Prime has also been tangled in labor disputes for years with the Service Employees International Union, United Healthcare Workers West, which has publicized a variety of allegations against the company. And now our crime report. Norman A. Brooks, MD, the owner of the Skin Cancer Medical Center in Encino, has paid the United States nearly $2.7 million 
to resolve allegations that he submitted bills to Medicare for Mohs micrographic surgeries for skin cancers that were not medically necessary. The settlement resolved allegations in a whistleblower lawsuit brought by a former employee of the medical center. The lawsuit alleged that Dr. Brooks falsely diagnosed skin cancer in some of his patients so that he could perform and bill for Mohs surgeries. Mohs surgery is a specialized surgical procedure for removing certain types of skin cancers in specific areas of the body, including the face. The surgery is performed in stages during which the surgeon removes a single layer of tissue, which undergoes a microscopic evaluation. The surgeon performs additional stages if necessary until all of the cancer is removed. Given the complexity and time required to perform the procedure, Mohs yields a higher Medicare reimbursement than other procedures used to remove skin lesions. As part of the settlement, Dr. Brooks entered into a three-year integrity agreement with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Office of Inspector General. For her role in the case, the whistleblower and former employee will receive nearly a half million dollars. In settling the case, Dr. Brooks did not admit liability in the matter. This matter was investigated by the United States Attorney's Office and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General. And in regulatory news, a new proposal being considered by California lawmakers would substantially remake the healthcare system by eliminating insurance companies and guaranteeing coverage for everyone. After more than two hours of debate, the Senate Health Committee cleared the state's latest attempt at adopting universal health care despite key concerns as to how to pay for it. Proposed Senate Bill 562 passed the Senate Health Committee in a 5-to-1 vote. It now advances to the Senate Appropriations Committee to face tough questions about how Californians would fund a single-payer health care system. The legislation would provide health insurance to all California residents, regardless of immigration status, and allow state regulators to negotiate drug costs with the pharmaceutical industry. Under SB 562, every one of the 39 million residents in the state would be eligible to receive all covered benefits without deductibles or co-pays. Users would be able to choose from any provider signed up for the government-run system. The program would be managed by a nine-member board appointed by the legislature and governor, as well as a 22-member public advisory committee. The board would be tasked with securing providers, negotiating reimbursement prices, and establishing standards for safe therapeutic care for all residents of the state. Currently, 56% of Californians obtain health care through their employer, while 39% are enrolled in some form of Medi-Cal or Medicare. The cost of California's health care is staggering. In 2016, health care expenditures totaled more than $367 billion. Critics say the plan is a job killer and have questioned the timing of transforming the state's health care system, with Congress also plotting large-scale health care reforms. Some critics have even gone so far as calling it Medi-Cal for all. The health insurance sector has predictably lined up against the bill, including Anthem Blue Cross, 
Kaiser Permanente, and Blue Shield of California. Governor Brown also expressed skepticism last month about how the single-payer system would be funded and implemented. Supporters will need to figure out how to comply with California's Proposition 98 if they want to raise taxes to pay for universal health care. Proposition 98 requires 40% of revenues from any new taxes to go to education. They will also have to attain a federal waiver in order to receive federal health care support. But the bill's author said that if the waiver is denied, he has identified other ways around the denial, including a potential lawsuit. No state currently has a single-payer system, but California lawmakers have been kicking around the idea for decades. Voters rejected a universal health care initiative in 1994, and five separate bills have proposed since 2003, including a 2007 effort vetoed by then-Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Everest National Insurance Company has been elected to the governing committee of the Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau of California. The WCIRB governing committee is responsible for setting and overseeing the management of the affairs of the WCIRB. This election by Everest peer members of the WCIRB is for a three-year term. The WCIRB membership is comprised of all companies licensed to transact workers' compensation insurance in California, which is over 400 member companies in total. The governing committee is represented by 12 members, seven private insurers, state compensation insurance fund, and four public members, two representing insured employers and two representing organized labor. Except for the state fund, insurer members are elected for three-year terms by the membership at the annual meeting where public members are appointed for two-year terms by the insurance commissioner. Everest Ray Group Limited is a Bermuda holding company that operates through a number of subsidiaries. Everest National Insurance Company and Everest Security Insurance Company provide property and casualty insurance to policyholders in the United States. The Association for Responsible Alternatives to Workers' Compensation promotes state legislation that permits employers to opt out of benefit programs for injured workers. The ARAWC now seeks a voice in Washington, according to a lobbying registration form filed by the management law firm Littler Mendelson. The coalition has hired Littler Mendelson to lobby on workers' compensation programs and what appears to be the controversial state-level advocacy group's first foray into national politics. The lobbying activity follows interest from Democratic lawmakers and the Labor Department in bolstering federal oversight of state-run workers' comp programs. Texas is currently the only state that allows businesses to exit the state-run system and create their own benefits programs for injured workers. The Oklahoma Supreme Court struck down a similar law in that state as unconstitutional in 2016. If the ARAWC and Littler Mendelson firm are lobbying the federal administration to stop 
investigating state plans. A Department of Labor spokesman wasn't immediately able to provide detail on the status of the agency's probe into state workers' comp plans and whether it is continued after President Donald Trump took office. The agency's pre-Trump policy initiatives await direction from a new labor secretary as the nominee to lead the agency, Alexander Acosta, has yet to receive a vote from the full Senate. The ARAWC argues on its website that giving employers the option to exit the state government system improves medical outcomes for injured employees, facilitates better communication between workers and businesses, and provides for a more efficient court process. And in medical news, a cartilage-mimicking material created by researchers at Duke University may one day allow surgeons to 3D print replaceable parts that are custom-shaped to each patient's anatomy. Human knees come with a pair of built-in shock absorbers called the menisci. These ear-shaped hunks of cartilage nestled between the thigh and shin bones cushion every step we take. But a lifetime of wear and tear or a single wrong step during a game of soccer or tennis can permanently damage these key supports, leading to pain and increased risk of developing arthritis. The hydrogel-based material the researchers developed is the first to match human cartilage in strength and elasticity, while also remaining 3D printable and stable inside the body. To demonstrate how it might work, the researchers used a $300 3D printer to create custom menisci for a plastic model of a knee. After we reach adulthood, the menisci has limited ability to heal on its own. Surgeons can attempt to repair a torn or damaged meniscus, but often it must be partially or completely removed. Available implants either do not match the strength and elasticity of the original cartilage or are not biocompatible, meaning they do not support the growth of cells to encourage healing around the site. Recently, materials called hydrogels have been gaining traction as a replacement for lost cartilage. Hydrogels are biocompatible and share a very similar molecular structure to cartilage. If you zoom in on either, you'll find a web of long, string-like molecules with water molecules wedged into the gaps. But researchers have struggled with how to create recipes for synthetic hydrogels that are equal in strength to human cartilage or that are 3D printable. The currently available gels do not tend to stay put, but experiments with mixing two gels with differing complementary properties show promise. 3D printing of other custom-shaped implants, including hip replacements, cranial plates, and even spinal vertebrae, is already practiced in orthopedic surgery. These custom implants are based on virtual 3D models of a patient's anatomy, which can be obtained from CT or MRI scans. Meniscus implants could also benefit from 3D printing's ability to create customized and complex shapes, so say the researchers. The meniscus is under a lot of pressure, so if an implant does not fit perfectly, it can slide out and be painful or debilitating. 
Multi-material 3D printers also can help with meniscus implants, allowing different materials and different layers to allow some parts to be stiffer and others to be softer. In one demonstration, a researcher used a CT scan of a plastic model to 3D print a new meniscus in about a day. Researchers hope that the ease of this technology will garner additional interest into biological 3D printing and create prints even closer to real human tissue. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.